This evening's reading is from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 8. Now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. But the man who loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you, who have this knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way, and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause him to fall. Knowledge is power. Francis Bacon said that, or something very much like that, at the end of the 16th century. His words have been extensively quoted and adapted with approval ever since. Kofi Annan says, knowledge is power. Information is liberating. Education is the premise of progress in every society, in every family. And there is no doubt at all that education brings immense benefits to countries as people learn better how to live, standard of life goes up, and a country can be transformed by education. So, I for one would agree wholeheartedly with Francis Bacon. Knowledge is power. But Paul isn't so sure that knowledge is necessarily a good thing. Now, I'm well aware that the church has quite a bad track record over the centuries of suppressing freedom of thought and critical inquiry. But it's not that St Paul was opposed to the development of knowledge. He was not in favour of any kind of obscurantism. 
What troubled him was the conceit that came hand in hand with an acquisition of knowledge at Corinth. I know this. I am right. If you don't get it, that's your problem. It's all very well saying, we all possess knowledge. The problem was that, as Paul puts it well, knowledge puffs up. But love builds up. The educated elite were using their knowledge to put others down. And that was proving to be quite destructive. Love, for Paul, was more important than knowledge. Because love doesn't put others down from a position of superiority. On the contrary, love is concerned to lift others up. In those days, education was available only to the privileged few. But the capacity to love was within everyone's grasp. Love without learning can easily be mistaken and misguided, but learning without love can easily be conceited and pernicious. As one commentator puts it, for Paul, true knowledge consists not in the accumulation of so much data, nor even in the correctness of one's theology, but in the fact that one has learned how to live in love towards all. Such knowledge is the real thing. Those of us who prize education may want to protest that you can't boil all knowledge and learning down and say that the most important thing of all is that we love each other. It just sounds so banal. Boring and obvious it may be. But the reality is that if we all learn to love each other a little bit more effectively, the world, not to mention the church, would be a much better place. Knowing, in theory, that we ought to love each other is one thing. Learning how to do it effectively is quite another. And if the the theory's up here, but the expression doesn't come from here, then the knowledge isn't worth very much. The knowledge, the assurance, the understanding held by some of the better educated people at Corinth was that we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and there is no God but one. And they took that knowledge to its logical conclusion. If idols represent false gods which have no basis in reality, then we can live our lives in complete disregard of their existence. They don't count, they don't matter, we can just ignore them and live as if they don't exist. That means if I'm shopping in the marketplace and I I want to buy some meat, it doesn't matter to me whether that meat comes from an animal that was sacrificed as an offering to a pagan deity, because the ritual sacrifice is rubbish, as far as I'm concerned. It has no significance whatsoever. It is of no consequence to me whatsoever. I can buy and eat what I like without worrying about where it came from or what religious rite it might have been used in, because an idol has no existence. Therefore, it is irrelevant to me. And if I'm invited to a birthday party... 
in a room that happens to be attached to one of the local pagan temples, I'll go. And I'll, I'll be part of the party. I'll celebrate the person's birthday and I'll eat and drink whatever is served. And I won't be bothered that this is part of a, a complex that's dedicated to worshipping some other god because the god doesn't exist. It doesn't matter. I'm not bothered by it. I'm free to do this because all the other so-called gods and lords are of no account whatsoever. Because for me, as far as I'm concerned, there is only one God, the Father, and one Lord Jesus Christ, and that is all that matters. Nothing else counts. It's a logical, coherent position, and one actually with which Paul doesn't want to disagree. But he has reservations. His problem is that although everyone might know in theory that the only God is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and all the other so-called gods are of no account, not everyone is quite robust or secure in that assurance. Not everyone has that educated knowledge. Not everyone has quite such a strong faith. So, On the one hand, you have the strong, those who have education, social power, political status and wealth. They are the ones who know what is what. They go to the marketplace and buy meat without a second thought. Then you get the weak, those who haven't been educated to quite such a high level, those of perhaps lower social standing, who would only eat meat on rare special occasions. And for them, meat was inevitably associated with those special occasions. And in their background, a special occasion was a festival to a pagan deity. So they only ate meat at times when it was part of a pagan celebration. And for them, the association was inextricable. Meats that had been used in in celebration of a pagan deity, they had real reservations about whether it was safe or proper or right to eat that or not. They couldn't quite get their heads around the idea that it just didn't matter. And they might know in their heads that idols had no real existence, but in their hearts, they weren't fully persuaded that that was the case. They still had niggling doubts and reservations. So yes, they could give intellectual assent to the claim that there is no other God but the Lord, but their conscience wasn't quite ready to eat meat that had been sacrificed to a pagan deity and think nothing of it. And even Paul himself, committed monotheist though he was, couldn't quite divest himself of the notion that behind these man-made idols in man-made temples, there lay real spiritual and demonic powers. And he was deeply concerned for the well-being of anyone who might be influenced against their conscience and better judgment to become involved in pagan religious practices where in their minds they would invest whatever was going on with meaning and significance and so become vulnerable to whatever spiritual power might be lurking to exploit that particular spiritual weakness. For such people, it was not blindingly obvious that idols had no real existence, that they didn't count and didn't matter. And consequently, any involvement in pagan practices constituted a real threat to their faith. 
So Paul says, you who've got this knowledge, you who aren't bothered about idols, be mindful of those for whom it is an issue. And don't say, well, that's their problem because they haven't grasped it, they don't understand properly. If they have a problem, you need to take that on board. Be sensitive to their conscience. Be aware of their difficulty. Don't lord it over them because you have an understanding that they haven't grasped yet. Love them. Be concerned for their well-being. And don't pursue what's right in your own eyes with a disregard for the problems that might cause them. Because if someone who has an issue with idol worship is persuaded by you that it's perfectly all right because they've seen you do it and they do it and they struggle because of it, then their difficulty is laid at your door. Don't wound or damage or destroy the faith of this person for whom Christ died. Their well-being is more important than your freedom to do what is right in your own eyes. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. The issue of meat offered to idols is not a particularly important one for us today. But there are loads of issues over which Christians disagree and over which Christians are quite convinced in their own minds that I have got this right and you haven't grasped the truth about what this is really all about. And whereas it's right and proper that we live in accordance with the courage of our convictions, Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 8, applied to meat offers to idols, actually applies to a whole range of other issues where we might think we've got it right. How do we deal with those who see things differently with consideration and respect? Being aware that the issue is settled in our own minds, but it might not be quite so black and white for them. Uh, We're not free to trample over their consciences or dismiss their views with no account or to pride ourselves on the knowledge that we have whereas they haven't grasped it yet. I suppose the closest issue that we have today with the issue that Paul was dealing with in Corinth is whether the meat we buy in the supermarket is halal or not. Uh, Whether it's meat that comes from an animal that was stunned before it was slaughtered whether it was slaughtered without being stunned so that it's free and acceptable for, for Muslims to eat. And there are people who get quite hung up over that. And supermarkets don't divulge that kind of knowledge to consumers, whether this meat has come from uh, a slaughterhouse where it's stunned beforehand or not, as the case may be. Most of us don't give it a second thought when we do our shopping. But some people have quibbles, concerns over that. For some, it's a real issue. Other people, the whole issue of meat consumption is a big one. Vegetarians, vegans even more so. For them, it is a matter of principle. And they have problems with people who don't see things the same way. But we need to be considerate to those who see things differently. Other people differ whether it's okay to drink alcohol or not. If my consumption of alcohol causes problems for somebody else for whom consumption of alcohol is an issue, then I need to curtail my consumption so as not to lead them astray should never have a drink in the presence of someone who has alcohol issues. It's destructive. 
And we might know it's okay for us, but if it's not okay for them, it's not okay for us either. That's where love triumphs over knowledge. And then there are matters of biblical interpretation, aren't they? Committed evolutionists and seven-day creationists need to share their knowledge and insights in ways that are loving and respectful to those who see things differently. And there are other issues over which Christians who hold their faith sincerely disagree. Political affiliation. You're a Christian and you vote for them? Women in ministry. The question of universalism. The big ones. Homosexuality. Sex outside of marriage. All of these issues are things we have a responsibility to think through for ourselves and reach a coherent position which we can hold with integrity. This, this is what I believe and I'm persuaded in my own mind that this is right and this is true. And if I'm convinced in my own mind, then I need to find respectful, loving ways of engaging with those who may hold views very different to my own. Because whatever knowledge I have, and however I live my life in the light of that knowledge, I need to recognise that love for and acceptance of those with whom I differ is not an optional extra. Yes, we all have knowledge, but that knowledge doesn't necessarily lead us all to the same conclusions. And that's why love is essential. And so is humility, actually. As Paul says in verse 2, the man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. That's a fairly obscure thing to write, isn't it? But what he's saying is, beware of making your mind up over something and making that a dogma from which you're not prepared to shift. If you are convinced that you are 100% right, well, maybe you are just a little bit too set in your opinions. The theoretical physicist John Archibald Wheeler was absolutely right when he said, we live on an island surrounded by a sea of ignorance. As our island of knowledge grows so does the shore of our ignorance. That's quite profound, actually. The bigger the island of your knowledge gets, the bigger the shoreline, and the more you know, the more you become aware, actually, that there's a lot out there that I don't know. And that's the effect of good education. And the danger in dismissing another point of view simply because we disagree with it often betrays ignorance rather than knowledge. In our limited extent of knowledge, we're convinced that we're right, but we just haven't grasped actually yet that there are different ways of seeing this that we need to respect and be open to. Because nobody has a monopoly on truth. We need to be ready to learn from those with whom we disagree. And that's particularly so when it comes to knowing God, because God is infinite. I say this as your minister. Be very wary of anyone who claims that they have all the answers. If they do, they're probably only asking a very limited range of questions. So when it comes to knowledge, we need love. When it comes to knowledge, we need humility. And when it comes to knowledge, we need to recognise that knowledge comes in different forms. It's one thing to know about God in your head. 
That kind of knowledge is arguably reflected in how often you've worked your way through the Bible from cover to cover, or in the number of theological books that you have read or on your shelves. That's one kind of knowledge. It's different from knowing God in your heart. Because knowing God here in your heart, that is life-changing, life-shaping knowledge. Because it involves a personal commitment that only we can make. To know God personally is to love God. And to love God is to be known by God. That's the point Paul makes. It's all very well saying you know this stuff. If you think you know stuff, you don't know as you ought to know. But the person who loves God is known by God. That's what really counts, he says. It's not just a matter of knowing that there is one God. It's a matter of knowing that this one God is the God whom we know and love and trust with our lives because he is God the Father. It's a relational knowledge. Everything comes from him. He's the one for whom we live our lives. And it's a matter of knowing the one Lord, Jesus Christ, the one who governs and directs who we are and how we should live and whose kingdom reigns in our hearts. He is the one through whom all things come and through whom we exist. He's the foundation of our lives and without him we would not be here at all. That's the knowledge that Paul prizes. It's not a knowledge that can be measured by books on shelves. It's a knowledge that's measured in God's knowledge of us and in our response of love to him. It's a knowledge that comes about as we welcome Jesus Christ as our saviour. Welcome the spirit of God into our hearts for him to make his home in our lives. And that kind of knowledge of God finds expression in worship. It finds expression in lives lived selflessly in his service and the service of others. It's not what you know. It's not how much you know that matters. It's who you know. And Jesus introduces us to the living God and invites us, calls us, to live our lives for him in humility and in love. That's the knowledge of God to which we're called. So let's pray. Lord, you are beyond our comprehension. There is so much about you that we cannot begin to understand. Yet thank you that you've made yourself known to us in love and in grace. And thank you for bringing us to that point where even though we didn't necessarily understand very much, we felt that we could put our trust in you as our Lord and Saviour. And thank you for the way in which gradually our knowledge of you has grown since then. But Lord, keep us from ever prizing head knowledge above heart knowledge. May we be people whose lives are governed by our knowledge of you as Lord and Saviour, not our knowledge about you. 
and whatever we may know in our minds to be right and true, enable us always to live in love, particularly with those with whom we disagree. Give us humility and a desire to learn more and to know you better that we might live our lives for you better. So we ask this in your name. Amen.